0: Good morning. We uh, are preaching at Grace Church through the book of 1 Peter in the New Testament. We're in our penultimate week. One more week to go next week. And uh, I'll come to the passage in a moment, but I want to start by telling you about this man, John G. Patton, who uh, has a great beard, if nothing else. Um, I remember reading about this guy kind of in my early 20s. Uh, In 1958, he and his wife, Mary went as uh, missionaries to the New Hebrides, which is a group of 80 islands in the South Pacific, now known as Vanuatu. They went to preach the good news to people who had never heard of Jesus. It's an unreached people group. And there had been some fruit in in that area with some who had gone before on a different island called Anetium, um, but also, it was definitely hostile ground. So in 1839, 19 years prior to when they went, two other missionaries had landed on the island of Eromango and both of them were killed and eaten by cannibals on the 20th 20th of November 1939, minutes after going ashore on the island. Others had gone to another island, Tanna, they had lasted about six months before being driven off real hostility and persecution that they were going to. And so when he was going, John Patton, uh, there were a number of people kind of persuading him against it. And uh, Mr. Dixon said to him, the cannibals, you will be eaten by the cannibals. It's kind of a famous expression, which, um, yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a real threat and probably enough to put me off. Do you know, I That's okay, that's a good point, you raise. Um, that, that is a good point, I won't go. But actually, John Patton famously replied to Mr. Dixon. He said, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honouring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. It's a great great quote. Um, And so they went and it was not a smooth first attempt. Mary was pregnant when they were on the voyage Uh, And they arrived in November. Their baby, Peter, was born in February the next year. And in March, Mary fell ill for a couple of weeks with a fever and then died. And then a couple of weeks after that, baby Peter died as well. And he, he wrote after that, Let those who have ever passed through any similar darkness as of midnight feel for me as for all others it would be more than vain to try to paint my sorrows. And uh, he ended up staying there for four years uh, on his own to try and serve the locals, reach them with the gospel. But they were as hostile as had been expected. And there's, there's loads of stories of his life being in danger as he did so. One example uh, is this story where a local man called Ian had called John Patton to his sickbed. And, and as Patton leaned over him he pulled a dagger and held it to Patton's heart and he later wrote I durst neither move nor speak except that my heart kept praying to the Lord to spare me or if my time was come to take me home to glory with himself. There passed a few moments of awful suspense. My sight went and came not a word had been spoken except to Jesus And then Ian wheeled the knife around and thrust it into the sugarcane leaf. And he cried to me, go, go quickly. I ran for my life a weary four miles till I reached the mission house faint, yet praising God for such a deliverance. After four years of this, he was eventually blamed for a, a pandemic that had broken out and a ship arrived to take him home to safety just in time to save his life. At that point, you think, you know, good effort, mate. Fair enough now to call it quits, try something else. Ashley spent four more years gathering support, mobilizing people around Australia. And he remarried Margaret and went back to another island, the smaller island of Aniwa. And it was a much more fruitful second attempt. Now, this was a place where they would also eat their, defo- their defeated foes. In battle, they would then eat them. They practiced infanticide. They killed the widows of dead men in order to reunite them in the afterlife. And John and Margaret labored there together. They learned the language, reduced it to writing. They started orphanages. They taught women and girls skills like sewing and reading. And they ministered to the sick and the dying. And it wasn't easy, again, but over the next 15 years, they saw the entire island turn to Jesus. And now today, centuries later, about 80% of Vanuatu, all of the islands, would identify as Christians. It's the, the fruit of their labour and, and a number of others who followed them as well. And we think, whoa, <laughs> that is amazing. But we can ask what do we do with that? What does that mean for us? Now, in my kind of youthful recklessness a few years ago, I used to think, well, it's obvious. I'm going to go and, I'd say I'm going to go and preach the gospel. I live in a hut somewhere, impoverished. No, people have never heard of Jesus. I'm going to go preach the gospel there. I told Liz that once when we were dating and uh, she wasn't into it. it didn't go down well at all. And I'm still, yeah, still getting mocked for that. Certainly, that is not the reality for most of us. Now, if you want to do that, then come and talk to me. I, I can't come with you, but let's, let's make that happen. But for most of us, that's not the reality. And so I tell the story for two reasons. One is certainly to inspire us with such amazing stories. And the other reason is to help to acknowledge the difference between our context, our context and theirs. Now, we don't live among an unreached people group. So what is it to live for Jesus and even to suffer for him in our situation. The passage in 1 Peter is really about Christians suffering for Jesus, about persecution and I'll read the passage and we are going to look at what does the Bible say and what does that mean for us today. So we're in chapter 4 of 1 Peter from verse 12. Dear friends, Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do do good. So we've got three things that this passage tells us and what that means for us today. And then I've got one simple but significant question to ask us. So one thing we see is that Christian persecution is normal. So that kind of intimate and yet very real start to the passage. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. The, the people that Peter was writing to were clearly experiencing some kind of ostracism. And Peter tells them, don't worry, it's totally normal what you are going through. And we can read it now and think, yeah, well, normal for them and, and normal for missionaries to, to the new Hebrides in the 1800s. But us, us today, and that is partly a fair question, right? It is, it is unlikely that we are going to be eaten by cannibals for our faith, but that was a very real risk for the patterns as they went there. But all Christians should expect fiery ordeals of some kind. The, the Bible has, has it a different way round to the way that most of us have it. So we tend to go the other way and ask, why am I going through this trial? What's going, why am I, why is this happening? Getting, whether it's persecution, any kind of trial, just going through it. Why is this happening? And the one answer that the Bible gives is obviously hugely complex. But one answer that the Bible gives is, well, that's totally normal too. And we, So we rarely ask the other way, why am I not going through a trial? Why, why am I not going through a fiery ordeal? But, but that is the way more abnormal place to be in. 2 Timothy uh, 3 verse 12 goes even further and says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So it's not just normal that Christians will be persecuted. It is inevitable, which begs the question, what does that mean for us in the UK in 2023? We live in different times to Peter and to John and Mary and Margaret Patton. In, in those worlds, Christianity and its values were utterly foreign, They're totally, totally foreign to everything else that they held to, but in our world, we could call it a post-Christian culture, the, the Christian or the kingdom values are actually quite prominent and, and often assumed. And I'd argue that things like compassion and equality are only so prominent and assumed in our secular culture because of the impact that Christianity has had on it. But people, they want these Christian or kingdom values, like compassion and equality, but they passionately do not want Christ. They want, you could say, the kingdom and those values without the king. So whatever context or era we live in, Christian persecution is normal, but it will look different according to where and when you live. Persecution for Christ is a very real thing in a post-Christian context like our own. It is not an uncommon perspective that individuals can only be free once Christianity has been totally dismantled and all Christian perspectives are silenced or, or even eliminated. You will you hear that. That perspective is very much out there in the world that we live in. They want the kingdom, the values, without the king, whereas we, we want the king. And so we, we are in a bit of a problem. Kate Forbes, the politician, is kind of an easy example to think of who someone who failed in her bid to lead the the SMP because of her Christian beliefs. People were saying those beliefs have no place in public life because you are a Christian you cannot have this office. That is a form of persecution and a Muslim beat her in the vote. She, she said recently, I do think that people of faith in politics are a minority and certainly my experience is that they are, by and large, fearful. But it's not about politics, right? It's because that's a bit out there. It's much more real than that. Many of you will have known times of being mocked and ostracised, marginalised for, for holding to Christian beliefs. Many of you will, be, will have been told to do things at work that contradict your faith and you have a choice. Do you kind of compromise your faith or, or do you not and accept that there will be consequences, a, a form of persecution? I've been laughed at by, by kind of my own extended family members for, for holding Christian beliefs. Even on my theology degree, I was laughed at at people for holding to historically orthodox Christian perspective. Now, And actually being laughed at is is not too bad. Being seen as evil, that's a lot harder. And that's the much more present reality. We're kind of patronized sometimes, but more often these days we're we're seen as despicable. Gone are the days where you can believe what you want as long as you believe it privately. Kind of tolerance is not enough anymore. And so disagreeing, even in private, can be seen as hateful and evil. And we've got to try hard to, to show the world that we love them, even if we disagree with them. The, the persecution, the, the derision, reality is, I don't know if you've kind of thought this through, reality is it's only likely to grow. We're, we're only likely to be seen as more backwards, more deluded, more distorted as we move forward. And this is the important thing, right? Hear this, the, the point I am making is not to prove that we are persecuted. Honest, we really are persecuted. Certainly not to play the victim. Oh, it really is quite hard for us. It's harder than we often think. That's not the point. The point is this kind of tender to, don't be surprised, dear friends, brothers and sisters, don't be surprised. If you're experiencing fiery ordeals, it's okay. God knows. He isn't surprised and he doesn't want us to be either. If you are struggling, if you are facing consequences because of your Christian beliefs, things that are being held against you, don't be surprised. And Peter, he calls it a fiery ordeal. He's not saying that we should find it easy. This is not to say, come on, it's not that big a deal. It's hard. It is okay. It's normal to find it hot and burning, but it's also normal to experience it. Christian persecution is normal, even even in cultures and contexts like our own and probably increasingly so. Two more things that this teaches us what it means for us today. And then the question kind of, I've answered the reason that is normal from a kind of human or historical perspective that Christians should expect to be unusual, should expect to be an outsider in a post-Christian world, right? We are Christians in a post-Christian world. We're exiles. Another reason that we shouldn't be surprised is more theological and, and possibly a harder pill to swallow is that Christian persecution, the Bible says, is a test. That's why The fiery ordeal has come on you to test you. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you. It's more complex and profound than to say that every time you suffer or are persecuted, it is because God is testing you. It's it's way deeper and, and more profound than that. But all of our struggles are an opportunity in that sense. And probably this this actually goes beyond just persecution to include any struggle that you are facing now or will face in the future or have faced in the past. James uh, chapter one, verse two and three says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whatever you face, whenever you face trials of of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. This, This is hard to grasp it's important to grasp. We need to be equipped for the inevitable. We we, we might not know persecution is inevitable, but we, we do know that suffering is. When Sanchez in his commentary on these verses says, if you don't have a theology of Christian suffering that is informed by all of scripture, you will be surprised when you suffer. In the midst of Christian suffering, you will likely ask the wrong questions or give the wrong answers. You will likely feel emotionally confused whenever you may suffer. You may assume that God has abandoned you or is punishing you. You will be angry or bitter at God. You will be anxious and despondent in your circumstances. And you will probably respond irrationally, blaming God or others. You may even ultimately reject God, Christ, the church and the Christian faith don't think that way or go that way. Peter says, don't be surprised when you face Christian suffering because God is at work in you and through your suffering to bring you to himself. It's a hard kind of a helpful uh, warning. It's hard to grasp on the one hand and yet we know that right, the sharp sword is forged in the flames and not in the blankets, right? You want to get a Bit of metal into a sword you, you don't put it in a blanket you put it through the flames. John and Mary Patton we kind of know I'm willing to bet they knew God better than I did probably than any one of us because they had nothing else to lean on but God because of the sufferings they probably knew God even better. I've been around kind of Christian circles a little while now I've seen a lot of people become Christians, love it, love baptisms, love hearing people's stories. One testimony that I am still waiting to hear is I, I had a great life, I had a great job, I had a great house, great holidays and then I got a promotion and I thought God must love me and so I became a Christian, I gave my life to him because life's just so good. You kind of think we should have those stories, but just, I've never heard that one. One I have heard a lot is, do you know, I was, I was really low already. I was at a low point in my life. I lost my job. I lost my family. I was at rock bottom. And then Jesus broke into my life and gave me hope when I, when I should have had none. But I had more hope than I'd ever had before. I've had that many times. We don't put metal in blankets and cuddle them to get it to become a sword. You put it in the flames and you bash it and you bash it. We are purified in the flames. I had a good friend who was a teenager who um, had become a Christian when her older brother, she was a teenager at the time, her older brother died in a car crash. And that was the thing that that brought her to Jesus. It wasn't, you think, oh, that's the thing that should lead you away from God in so many ways, but no. And now she's walking with God today. It's not to say that the fire is easy, but it is there that we are purified. And it's true for believers as well. Generally, the times where we know God's goodness the most and lean on him the most is when we're in the fire. And God knows this. He knows that we need him So he tests us to purify us. Sometimes people fail the test. Jesus talks of those who receive the word with joy, but have no root. And when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. But those who trust in God will remain and will be very, very fruitful. I think this is what verses 17 to 19 of our passage are getting at. It is a test. And today, you know, I think comfort can be our greatest enemy in any context. I, I think that's the case. It's true on an individual level, where we're, comfort doesn't help us. Actually, it's the struggling that leans, makes us lean on God. And it's true on a larger scale. Where is the church struggling today? It's in the progressive West, places like the UK, is where the church is struggling. Where is the church thriving and exploding? Nations like China and India, where it is very hard to be a Christian. They reckon by 2050, there'll be more Christians in China than any other nation. It's currently illegal to be a Christian in China. Christians in those nations are being tested and they are passing with flying colors. Christian persecution is a test and Christian persecution is a privilege. This is really where the passage has all been leading, that Christian persecution is a privilege. Verses 13 to 16, rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. It is a privilege because we participate in the sufferings of our Saviour and our Lord. I once heard um, that Edith Schaefer, who, this amazing woman of God, uh, was, she was being interviewed and the interviewer asked her, who is the greatest Christian woman living today? And she said, we don't know her name. She's dying somewhere in a cancer ward or living in India. That's a brilliant answer. We are, we are desperate to look to the stage, to look to Instagram and TikTok. We're the one with the most F- followers, who is the greatest? We, we, we want to look there. The greatest Christian is absolutely, definitely someone that we have never heard of, who is being persecuted for believing in Jesus. They will have the greatest crown in glory. The, the, the point is, being made, made it, it's not even just rejoice even in persecution, but especially if you have made a choice at work that has had consequences because you've chosen to stand on your Christian beliefs, it's a form of persecution and it's not easy to endure. But you can rejoice in the privilege of facing consequences and persecution as a direct response of your faith in Jesus. Personally, as a a preacher and teacher of the Bible, I have to make the decision to... Preach the Bible as I understand it, as I think it wants to be preached as God would want me to preach. And if one day that means that I go to prison for that, then so be it. it I'm not saying it'd be easy. It would have huge and tragic implications primarily for my family. And yet in this profound way, it would be a deep privilege. What is it for you? you could, we, we could reach a time... It's feasible where even just believing in the Bible privately is enough for you to be prosecuted in some ways. As you you connect with unbelievers, they will learn what you believe about huge things like humanity and the depth of our sin. And some people will see the truth in it and, and see it in the context of God's amazing love for us. And others will despise you for it. You'll be hated for bearing the name of Christ. But if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. It's the privilege of being called a Christian. It's a huge encouragement in verse 14 as well. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Throughout this series, there's been a lot of encouragement, right? You're an exile kind of Live for God and let other people see the way you live and glorify God. That's hard, this encouragement to live as an exile. This important, vitally important and beautiful reality that we do it in the strength of the spirit of glory and of God who rests on you. What an encouragement. And the question I have, Christian persecution is normal. It's a test and it is a privilege. The question I have is a simple, but a significant one. Who is your God? Who is your God? If, if Jesus is your God, and this is me as well, right? Then persecution will be no problem. Whatever Jesus says you will do and um, at whatever possible cost, you're totally fine with it because Jesus is your God. Maybe you could ask, what do you most fear losing? You can say, well, I will follow Jesus, but he can't expect me to be unpopular or even hated by some people. Well, then Jesus is not your real God. Your reputation is your real God. I'll follow Jesus, but if following Jesus means losing my job, then that's too far. Well, then your job is your real God. I'll follow Jesus, but I mean, it's unrealistic to not have sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman, or even in my marriage. Is that unrealistic to not look at porn then sex is your god. I'll follow Jesus, but but I won't accept what the Bible says about everything on on abortion or sexuality or caring and sacrificing for the poor. Then Jesus is not really your god. Something else is. I'll follow Jesus, but he can't really expect me to be persecuted. I'm not, that's surely that's what then Jesus is not your god, or maybe I don't follow Jesus. I just, I aim to be a kind person and to express myself. There's a question of idolatry. Who is your God? And two things. One is that no God other than Jesus will satisfy. If your reputation is God, you, you, you won't sustain it and then your world will collapse. If your sex life is God, eventually you will realize how hollow it is. It won't satisfy. If, if, you and expressing you is your God eventually you will realize that you you cannot sustain it and and if you aren't loving yourself well by trying to love yourself so much you see what I mean you, you can love yourself so much that it, it's failing That you're not actually doing yourself any fail- favors even noble things like your, your family or, or charitable works They will be bad gods. If your family is God more than Jesus, then you won't make family sacrifices for the sake of others, but you'll even exploit others for the sake of your family. If doing good charitable stuff is your God, you'll either look down on other people who don't do it, or you'll hate yourself when you don't reach your own standards. None of those gods will satisfy you. That's one thing. And then... The other thing is, and maybe this has already come clear, we're all going to fail. <laughs> we're never going to get it right. Even if you are saying today that, yeah, Jesus is your God, you know that something later today or later this week will make you act like something or someone else is, just like me. Something will happen and you'll say, yeah, Jesus is my God, but well, my reputation, I'm obviously going to kind of protect my reputation there. We won't be able to to sustain it, whether it's your family, you'll put something ahead of Jesus, none of us can sustain it. Even John and Margaret Patton would have failed. Times when we make something else our functional savior, our God, they are inevitable. We're breaking the first commandment when we do. The beauty of the gospel, the, the amazing, wonderful news of the gospel is that even though we fail, that doesn't mean that we cannot have life and joy. It doesn't mean you failed you're out. We, we don't get hope in the gospel by making sure that we succeed. Make sure Jesus is your God because we won't, we, we will compromise. We, the beauty of the gospel is that someone else has succeeded on our behalf where we have and will continue to fail. One of the, the single best summaries of the gospel in a single verse is in chapter 3 of Peter and, and verse 12, which says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Christians are called to suffer for Christ, but Christ first suffered for us, for our sins and for our failings. Why? Why did he do it? Why did Christ suffer once for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous? He did it to bring us to God, to the one true God, the only God that will satisfy us and never let us down. The one who we can never lose. The only thing that we don't have to spend our life trying to make sure we don't lose it. We might lose... Our reputation. We might lose our family. We might lose our good looks, our autonomy. Christians can never lose God because Christ has brought us to him. He has brought us to God. We don't get there ourselves. He came down to take us there. That is the beauty of the gospel. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for the gift of your son, that Christ also suffered for us and for our sins. Because we fail and will continue to fail, Christ suffered for us, the righteous given for the unrighteous to bring us to you, God. What an amazing gospel. Lord, I pray that we would know your gospel better, that we'd be more caught up in it so that we would be able to face anything and, and serve you and be faithful people of God because of all that you have done for us. Thank you that we cannot lose you because of Jesus's sacrifice on the cross for us. Help us to know the wonder of your sacrifice, King Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.